All right, let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of Revelation. Now, a few things on the front end um, with regards to Revelation. You will not always agree with your pastor on every conclusion reached from the book of Revelation. And if you are one of these people who really is enthralled with what is usually referred to as prophetic preaching, and you measure me against your prophetic preacher, you're probably going to be dissatisfied with the conclusions that I reach in tonight's meeting. There are many more issues in the book of Revelation than what I will make any effort whatsoever tonight at resolving. What I do want to say to you is, in, in the way of encouragement, is that this is not intended by God to be this mystery book that can only be understood by a handful of people. God does not speak in terms that cannot be well understood by his people. That was never the intent of, of the Bible, nor is it the intent specifically of the book of Revelation. My contention is that the book of Revelation actually, when you understand its genre, speaks in relatively simplistic terms. The challenge for us in reading Revelation is that we don't have a genre that comes close to the apocalyptic genre in our culture. If we were first century people, or if we took the time to expose ourselves more thoroughly to the apocalyptic genre, what you'll find is, what we do find is, that it reads much more naturally, much more understandably when we read it according to the conventions of the genre. What happens is that when people get to the book of Revelation, they lose all of their interpretive bearings. For instance, if you're reading the book of Ephesians, you know that in order to well understand the text of Ephesians, you need to bear in mind that the Apostle Paul is the author that Paul was raised a Jew, exposed to the teaching of Israel's scripture, that he often speaks in the terminology customary of a Pharisee in the first century, that he's writing to the church at Ephesus, a church that he spent a significant amount of time with and appears to have great affection for. There's this, there's this uh, tear-filled goodbye that Paul says in Acts 19 and 20 as he departs for Jerusalem in the expectation that there he's going to find great trouble. He meets with the Ephesian elders and he weeps at his departure and they weep at his departure. There's a closeness that exists between Paul and the church at Ephesus. You know that Ephesus is a city situated in an idolatrous context in terms of the religious commitments of that region, that area. They were deeply committed to idol worship. Diana, the goddess, was worshipped there, and there were silversmiths that were set up in the city trading and making quite a living, selling idols that would be a part of the worship of that city. You know when you read Ephesians that understanding the background of the author and the context into which he's writing are significant to understanding the book of Ephesians. Because of this interpretive principle, a Bible passage had to mean something to its first century audience before it can ever mean anything to us. For some reason, when we get to the book of Revelation, we lose our interpretive bearings and the sound interpretive principles we apply in every other book of the Bible seem to go completely out the window. 
I often think about, in fact, I think it is central to a healthy understanding of the Scripture, the principle of authorial intent. You understand that you don't determine the meaning of a biblical text. The human author, inspired by God's Holy Spirit, fixed in writing the meaning of a given text. That's a fairly basic principle. At least it should be. Now, there can, there's drift from that in our society and in the educational system in a very weird way. But our approach in trying to interpret the Bible is to determine what Paul in the case of Ephesians or what John in the case of Revelation intended to communicate. Now, think about that for just a moment. That limits for us the range of interpretive possibilities. As it relates to the book of Revelation, there are a few things that I know with absolute certainty. I know that John never envisioned the Apple iPhone as the mark of the beast. I know that John never envisioned the coronavirus vaccine as the mark of the beast. I know that Russia, China, the United States, nor any other contemporary nation is represented in the book of Revelation. You know how I know that? Because John, the beloved apostle and friend of Jesus, never knew about an Apple iPhone. And he never knew about the coronavirus. And he never knew about the United States or China or Russia. Do you see what I mean by the author's intent limits for us? It provides some boundaries for us in, in the way we make application. So I'm pointing that out because I've heard interpretations of passages in the book of Revelation that talked about Apache helicopters and locusts and crazy things. And I'm just telling you that that has nothing whatsoever to do with what John is describing in the book of Revelation. And we can say that with absolute certainty, with absolute certainty. So the same interpretive principles that you utilize in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul's epistles, and other books of the Bible should be brought to bear as you read the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is, again, of the apocalyptic genre. That term itself comes from Revelation 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. That term rendered in the English Revelation is essentially the word apocalyptic in the Greek, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. That's where the, the language of apocalyptic comes from, and it just means to reveal. So what John is recording for us in Revelation is the picture, the vision of Jesus that was revealed to him on the island of Patmos. Now, the apocalyptic genre, the writing style known as apocalyptic, is even in the Bible kind of rare. You find apocalyptic in the book of Daniel, apocalyptic in the book of Ezekiel. I would argue that there are short apocalyptic passages in Joshua, in Exodus, even in the gospel accounts, but they're all marked by the use of signs and symbols in order to communicate a certain message. Now, I know the tendency is to think that the book of Revelation is all about the end times and that Revelation is providing us with all of this new information, new material that has until this point in the history of the Bible never yet been revealed. 
But I actually believe that Revelation barely makes a new introduction to the body of doctrine established in the Bible. It's only that Revelation is couching its teaching of the gospel in this new genre with signs and symbols. Let me put that more simply. What John says in the Gospel of John with words, he says with pictures in the book of Revelation. Now, there's no way we're going to get to some of the intricacies of Revelation in the time that we have together tonight in an overview kind of series. But my intent is to take this book up in the next school year for preaching on Sunday morning. And some people are going to be sorely disappointed that we're not finding Russia and China and America and Black, Black Hawk helicopters. But most everyone is going to be greatly encouraged at how gospel-rich the book of Revelation is. I love to preach this book. I've only preached it one other time in my ministry. And what I found is that week after week after week, it's a fresh apocalyptic perspective on the promises of the gospel and what that means for us even during seasons of significant suffering. So some of you may have expectations that will not be met tonight, but I hope that all of you will be greatly encouraged by the substance of Revelation itself. The basic message of the book is victory in the Lamb who rules as Lord of all the earth. In fact, over and over and over again in the book of Revelation, John uses terminology that was customary in the Roman Empire to speak of Caesar. The book of Revelation is a counter to the mantra of its day that Caesar is Lord, saying in response, no, Jesus is Lord, and we will die faithfully witnessing to this reality. Page after page and chapter after chapter, the message resounds, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we are victorious even in death because of his lordship over all things. Now, there are a few things specific to the apocalyptic genre that can help us in interpreting the Bible. Here's a key. In every apocalyptic book or every section of a biblical book that is apocalyptic in nature, there will be what is called an inaugural vision. It just means the first vision. And that vision will be defined for us. We're going to read it in just a moment. It begins over in verse 12 of chapter 1. So you get this initial vision, and then John tells us what the vision means. The only parts of the inaugural vision that apocalyptic literature will not give us are the parts of the vision that are customary across the board in apocalyptic. So here's what I've discovered. There is this bank of symbols and images that are always used in the same way in every apocalyptic work. Like I could pull from my shelf tonight some apocalyptic works from the time of Jesus and even the 400 years before the time of Jesus, what's known as the Second Temple Period is full of apocalyptic writing. This is a common writing style in 400 B.C. to 100 A.D. And they're all using the same imagery, the same symbols. So when it's customary symbolism, when the imagery comes from that bank, that stock imagery, customary and apocalyptic, you may not get a definition. But anything that's off the beaten path is always going to be defined for you. 
Now think about what that means for us. That means that there is no element of mystery in the book of Revelation with regards to what these symbols intend. Because John gives us in the inaugural vision the key that unlocks what might otherwise be mysterious in the remainder of the book. Are y'all tracking with me? Now, there are some things that appear to us to be symbolic, which are just veiled references to component parts of the Roman Empire. It's important that you don't say Jesus is coming to conquer Rome or the city of Rome will fall. Because if you say that and Roman authorities find your letter to the seven churches, not only do you die, but the people in the seven churches die. So rather, John would say, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that Babylon, which comes to stand symbolically for the city of Rome, will fall because Jesus is Lord over her and she will come under his great judgment. If you want to communicate something about the emperor of Rome, you don't say Domitian is a terrible person. He's Nero returned from the dead. You just refer to him as the beast from the abyss. When you're writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor, who, by the way, are across the water from the city of Rome, who would, who would see from a distance the militia, the army of Rome, crossing over that water. If you want to refer to that, you don't say Domitian is sending his people. You say the beast from the sea is coming. But Jesus will be victorious over the beast from the abyss. And Jesus will be victorious over the beast from the sea. In fact, Jesus is victorious over all. So there is some symbolism, some thinly veiled terms, so as to not give up the cover of the church to further jeopardize their well-being in a dangerous environment where persecution is commonplace. But virtually everything else in Revelation is defined for us so that we're not left guessing about what certain things mean along the way. Look at chapter 1. In fact, let's begin in verse number 1. I'm going to move as quickly as I can. Verse 2. Uh, he sent these and signified them through his angel to his servant John, who testified to God's word and to the testimony about Jesus Christ in all he saw. The one who reads this is blessed, and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep what is written in it are blessed because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming, from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So take note here. This may seem superficial, but this is critical and often forgotten. The whole book of Revelation is written to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, typically what's done in teaching through Revelation is to separate or isolate Revelation 1 through 3. And what I would argue, and we can't deal with this at length tonight, but really Revelation 1 through 5 is, is the initial section. After chapter 5 is the true break point, the shift in focus in Revelation. That becomes important in establishing your theology. And if you're here tonight as one who is especially married to a certain system of eschatology, you're already at odds with the conclusions of your pastor. But I think that I can show you empirically that one through five is the initial section. And all of the book of Revelation is written to those seven churches suffering and struggling. Remember, 
our interpretive principles, basic interpretive principles we'd use in any other book of the New Testament must be brought to bear here as well. So John is writing to seven churches of Asia Minor. You might be helped at noting that this is the basic area to which the apostle Peter is writing to in 1 Peter, Asia, Cappadocia, um, Bithynia. The more rural areas are represented in Peter's concern, but these are the more urban centers, the seven major cities of Asia Minor. He says, continuing in verse 4, Grace and peace to you from the one who is, who was, and who is coming, from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Well, already there might be a question, what about these seven spirits? I think, I think this is a less than helpful translation to just translate seven spirits because this is an apocalyptic way of saying the fullness of the spirit. You might also translate that phrase as the sevenfold spirit. It's just an apocalyptic genre way of saying the fullness of the spirit. You're going to see that seven spirits language appear again and again in Revelation. John continues, To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, the glory and dominion are his forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, including those who pierced him, and all the families of the earth will mourn over him. This is certain. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is coming, the Almighty. So the introduction is basically Christological. This is to be a book about Jesus. It is the revelation of Jesus. Note, not the revelation of how the last days will unfold, but the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, it has bearing on what the future holds for us without question, but the primary focus of revelation is what? Rather, who? It's Jesus. So again, we're helped in that this observation provides for us some interpretive boundaries. If you're reading a passage or a chapter in Revelation and you're coming to conclusions that do not directly relate to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, you are likely outside the bounds of what John intends in a given passage. Look at verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of God's word and the testimony about Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned and saw seven gold lampstands and among the lampstands was one like the son of man, dressed in a long robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it's fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you've seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The secret of the seven stars you saw in my right hand 
and of the seven gold lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. There's the interpretive key. In the inaugural vision, beginning in verse number 12, you have the stock apocalyptic imagery for Jesus used to display his great glory. And in fact, what I'll tell you here is that this is as much a reliance on the book of Daniel's presentation of the Ancient of Days as it is the use of common apocalyptic symbolism or imagery. Not only are we having expressed for us the glory of our Savior, dressed in a long robe with a golden sash that speaks not only of his authority, but of his priestly and kingly office, white hair and and uh, a head that glows white as snow, his eyes a fiery flame, which has reference to his all-seeing power and ability. His feet is fine bronze that tread under in judgment to find powder, anything that crosses his path, with a voice like the sound of cascading water, speaking of the great force of his voice and the power of his word, a sharp double-edged sword that comes from his mouth that speaks of the judgment that he brings to bear by his very word, you have these sort of mysterious elements like the stars and the lampstands. But the stars and the lampstands are defined. The seven stars are the seven angels. The, the, the Greek word for angels is angelos. It's also the Greek word for messengers. So the question might be, are these seven stars the pastors or the leaders of the church or actual angels? I don't really know the answer to that question, but it's one worthy of consideration. It, it may not be a scenario where there are these sort of guardian angels for the seven churches of Asia Minor. Rather, the leadership of the church is in the hand of Jesus. And he's depicted here as walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands which represent the seven churches. The lampstand represents the presence of Jesus in the midst of those churches. The threat of judgment for those churches is that in their disobedience, God would remove their lampstand, which is to say remove his presence and remove any power of the Holy Spirit that they might have enjoyed. So this is the inaugural vision that sets our understanding for the symbols and the images that are going to be used in the chapters that follow. And the terms are here defined for us. Now, different elements of the inaugural vision are used throughout chapters 2 and 3, where the seven churches of Asia Minor are specifically addressed. I think I can show you pretty quickly what I mean by that. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus says to John, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is why I think it's the leadership, because he's writing to the angel, and the same term is being used in chapter 1 as here, angelos, messenger, or angel. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lampstands, says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil that you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you've found them to be liars. And on and on he goes. We won't read all of these seven specific addresses to the churches for the sake of time. But the gist of what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus is, you have been faithful and continue to be faithful. 
And the imagery of the inaugural vision is brought to bear in the introduction to that letter to serve as a reminder to them that Jesus is with them. Even in their suffering, even in their hardship, he is with them. Look at verse 8. Write to the angel of the church in Smyrna, the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life says, I know your affliction and poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison and to test you, and you'll have affliction for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give the crown of life. Now to a church on the brink of persecution unto martyrdom, Jesus reminds them that he was dead, but now he's alive. And don't forget that his resurrection means our resurrection as well. You've seen the use of some number in this particular address in a specifically apocalyptic way. You're going to have affliction for 10 days. There's a handful of numbers in biblical writing that stand for a a fullness of time or, uh, in some cases, a long fullness of time. Three is the the complete number. Seven is the complete number. Ten is the complete number, but it's bigger than the former two. And even a thousand at the end of Revelation comes to stand for a long time after which the fullness of time has come. You're about to suffer for a good while is what 10 means here. For 10 days means it's going to be a little while. It's going to be the full measure of time determined for you, longer than three and longer than seven. You're going to suffer for a while. But don't forget that you suffer under the banner of the gospel, a gospel message that is rooted in the reality that I was dead, but now I live and reign forevermore. You see how in every letter that inaugural image is influencing the encouragement that Jesus intends for these churches. Now, if you listen to your favorite prophecy preacher, I'm going to poke around a little bit. What they're going to tell you is that these seven letters represent a reference to seven church ages through history. And what I'm saying to you is that that's hogwash. They'll say to you that Ephesus represents... And then there was a season of significant persecution, and that's what Smyrna represents. And then on toward the end, there's some drift, and they'll point to our age, our church age, as being representative of uh, the the lukewarm experience at Ephesus. Now, y'all don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what I think here, right? I I don't write the news. I just report it. The problem with that position is that it's very Western specific. We look around in Western evangelicalism and we regard our age as lukewarm. But I want you to know that there are corners of the world where the heart of the church is white hot for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while we sit here tonight in a climate-controlled room with padded seats in an out-of-this-world facility on the corner of McInvale and Bahalia, in one of the most affluent areas in the state of Mississippi, that there are brothers and sisters hid away in quiet places, whispering their worship before God, 
after a long day of faithful work in the harvest, seeking the advancement of the kingdom under the full power of God's Holy Spirit, bearing witness in great strength, God moving among them in ways that bear resemblance to his movement in the book of Acts and throughout the New Testament, God doing things in their midst that far exceed anything we might observe in our lukewarm setting. The American church is not the only church. Now, here, here's, here's something that I find some comfort in. I'm, some, y'all going to be mad at me before we're done, but we'll, all, we'll learn how to get along. My, my understanding of the book of Revelation is a minority view in America, but it is the majority view in the world. When we, when we look at books like this, we tend to have such an ethnocentric understanding of biblical passages, being dismissive of the experiences of believers north, south, and east, and west. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not a Western religious message. It is a message for people of every tongue and tribe and nation. And God is actively at work on every continent of this planet, saving boys and girls and men and women by the power of the gospel, many of whom are experiencing journeys with Jesus that that are very dissimilar to ours. So I'm not mad at you if your position is this is the church ages. I'm just telling you there's no biblical basis for that position. You can't prove that to me from the text itself. John is writing into a first century context for the purpose of encouraging first century Christians, and we get the privilege of reading their mail and drawing conclusion from this back and forth inspired by God between John and those churches. Now, in each of these seven letters, in chapter 2, verse 18, in chapter 3, verse 1, in chapter 3, verse 7, in chapter 3, verse 14, There is reference to that inaugural vision, and the vision itself is leveraged to provide encouragement or judgment in a way that's appropriate to the specific church being addressed in that passage. Now, when you get to chapters 4 and 5, this is sort of the other side of the inaugural vision. In chapter 1, What John experienced was a vision of Jesus walking in the midst of the seven churches of Asia Minor. To put it in its simplest terms, what John witnessed was a vision of Jesus walking on the earth. What chapters 4 and 5 provide for us is the vision John receives of what's happening in heaven. What in the world is going on in heaven that Jesus is walking in our midst in these powerful ways? So chapters 4 and 5 are a heavenly vision of Jesus that reinforces, it provides for us an understanding of an an entirely different dimension of Jesus' work in the world. His work in the world undergirded by the counsels, decrees, judgments, and activity in heaven. Chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says, After this which, by the way, is a literary shift, not sequential. After this, an apocalyptic, specifically in this passage, doesn't mean next. In fact, I think the most difficult challenge in Revelation is not the symbols and the imagery. It's, it's the chronology, how the book moves, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. After this, in other words, next, the next vision, change the slide, 
not necessarily something that's happening chronologically after the events of the former chapters, but the next episode for our book, I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I, had, that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. This is just an invitation that John would look through the open door afforded him to see what is unfolding in heaven. Someone will have a question for me about that after our time tonight. Verse 2, the Bible says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and the throne was set there in heaven. One was seated on the throne, and the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone. A rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne. Around that throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were in the middle and around the throne. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is coming. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, worship the one who lives forever, cast their crowns before the throne, and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and because of your will, they exist and were created. Now, this is a chapter chock full of the kind of symbolism that people will stumble over and grow frustrated with in their study. But keep it simple as you read through a passage like this. Let's work through just sort of slowly here. Verse 2, a throne was set there in heaven. One was seated on the throne. This is the part of the vision that indicates for us that Jesus is king. In fact, the vision itself will go on to demonstrate that Jesus is the king of all kings. Verse 3, the one seated looked like jasper and carnelian stone. Now, I don't know much about stones. I don't know much about jasper or carnelian, but I know they're beautiful. So let's use the kiss method, keeping it simple here. This is a part of the vision that demonstrates the beauty of the one who is seated on the throne. A rainbow that looked like an emerald surrounded the throne. Within the context of apocalyptic literature, the rainbow speaks of God's mercy. People don't think of this passage in these terms, but the, the flood in Noah's day was an apocalyptic event, and it uses apocalyptic imagery. And what is it that God sets in the sky to demonstrate his mercy toward mankind and the promise that he'll never destroy the world with a flood again? It is rainbow. This is the part of the vision that demonstrates for us the great mercy that Jesus, seated on the throne as the king over every king, the all-beautiful one, has for us. Verse 4, the Bible says that around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with gold crowns on their heads. Now, 
there might be an element of mystery here, but try this on for size. There are 12 tribes of Israel. Elsewhere in the book of Revelation, when the 12 tribes are mentioned or 12 figureheads from those tribes are mentioned, it's representative of the full number of the people of Israel. Well, if you double that number, perhaps this is just symbolic of the full measure of all of God's people, not only from Israel, but from every tribe and tongue and nation. In any respect, however you understand the significance of the number 24, these kings are representative of the kings of the earth, seated in a circle about the greater throne, the throne of Jesus. They're there to demonstrate that although they may bear some significance, they may bear some authority, that Jesus is the ultimate authority. Notice that they cast their crowns before the feet of the Savior and they worship Him as their Lord and God, worthy to receive glory and honor and power. This is the part of the vision that demonstrates for us that Jesus is no ordinary king. Rather, of lightning and rumblings of thunder came from the throne. The part of the vision that reminds us of His absolute lordship over every, every realm of creation. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Again, you might translate that the sevenfold spirit of God. The burning lamp is often symbolic for the presence of God's Holy Spirit. The fullness of God's Spirit is there in the throne room of God before the authority and kingship of Jesus. In verse 6, something like a sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. It, it, all, everywhere in the Bible where the sea is made reference to, it has an apocalyptic connotation. It always represents evil. It represents chaos and tumult. There's even an apocalyptic tone about the creation account. In the beginning, the world was without form and void. There was chaos in the world. There was disorganization. But God comes down and brings order in the midst of the chaos. There's an apocalyptic tone about Jesus who calms wind and wave on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples' boat is tossed to and fro. Jesus stands and says, peace and be still. It's not just a story of his great power over wind and wave. It's the story of how he brings order into chaos, how he conquers evil, makes the sea as glass. And so before the throne of God is this crystal-like, glass-like, absolutely picture-perfect, serene, slick sea. This is the part of the image that reminds us of how Jesus has conquered chaos and Jesus has conquered evil and that heaven is a place of perfect peace. In fact, later in the book of Revelation, remember when John sees the new heaven and the, and the new earth? There's, there's, there's a part of our experience here that is not there. He says, there is no more sea doesn't mean that there won't necessarily be water in heaven. We'll get to that one of these days. It just means there's no chaos. There's no absence of peace. There's no presence of, of evil. There is no more sea. This symbol for the presence of tumult in our life has been altogether eradicated by the power of our Savior. Verse 6 continues, Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were in the middle and around the throne. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature was like a calf, and the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. 
Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is coming. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the elders fall down. So this is, this is where typically we stop and we start Google searching and reading commentaries to try to determine what all of these living creatures and their features represent for us. And I'm, I'm telling you, it's the KISS method again, right? Keep it simple. Not only do you have these strange figures, but more importantly, you have reference to, you have an allusion to Isaiah 6. Remember Isaiah 6? That, that vision that Isaiah has in Isaiah 6, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And flying about the throne room were those angels. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face. With two, they flew. And with two, they covered their feet. And they flew about the throne room, singing with such a powerful voice that the doorpost of the temple trembled at the sound of their voice as they sang the very song recorded here in verse 8. Holy, 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 Lord God the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is coming. Those living creatures represent a function of these living creatures and all their strangeness is not to say, wow, how impressive are those angels. When you're looking at Jesus, who is too beautiful to behold, whose glory is beyond our capacity to express, the only way you can really communicate at all about his greatness is to look to those things in the periphery of the vision and to demonstrate their superiority in glory to anything that we could possibly know as a way of saying, as great as that sounds, Jesus is all the better. If you're reading Isaiah 6, the purpose is not to be taken away by the angels with six wings who sing with booming voices, nor is the purpose of Revelation 4 that we'd be wrapped up in all of the intricacies of the vision. John is describing the picture and describing the picture to draw our attention toward the central figure of the vision who is Jesus seated on the throne. Let me ask you a question. I think this will help to demonstrate what I intend. Who can tell me what's in the background of the Mona Lisa? Who knows? Does anyone know what's in the background of the Mona Lisa? You don't know, nor do I. Because our gaze is fixed when we see the portrait on the face of Mona Lisa and not those things that are peripheral to the author's intended central focus. Now, you've got to remember when you're reading Revelation that the purpose here is to draw our attention not to those things on the periphery of the portrait, but to the goodness and the glory and the grandeur of the one who is seated on the throne. If you're looking at a mountain landscape, if you're fixating on the bird in the background or the bush in the foreground, you're missing the point. The purpose of the painting is to depict the beauty of the mountain. All of these things peripheral to the mountain 
are just there to accent the greatness and the beauty of the mountain itself. There are many instances in the book of Revelation where the strange things that you read of are only there in the periphery in order to draw our attention to the splendor of the one who is at the central focus of the text, and his name is Jesus. Now get to chapter 5. We're, we're out of time. Y'all want to stop? You want to do chapter 5 real quick? If you've got kids in the nursery, if you don't go get them, they'll kill me. So if you need to sneak out, you can do that. If you need to step out the back, you can. But we've got to look at chapter 5 because it's so good. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? That's the question. That's the question that unlocks the rest of the book of Revelation. Who is worthy to open the scroll? In verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under earth was able to open the scroll or even look in it. And I cried and cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. One of the elders said to me, stop crying. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah the root of David has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, the lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped now if you're living in the world's greatest empire the roman empire and the system is against you it has been decreed by the emperor that you will die for your faith in jesus you don't have friends in high places you don't have influence within society. You are without hope. Your only options are to deny Jesus and live or to confess his name and die. No one has authority to usurp the power of the emperor of the mighty Roman Empire. But in heaven, there is a lamb who is worthy to take and open the scroll and his name is Jesus. Everything that follows in the book of Revelation is about the authority that he bears not only to unroll the scroll, but to sound the trumpet and to pour out the bowls of God's judgment, to come to us in our distress 
to meet our need. I'm increasingly convinced that the picture that's being painted in the New Testament is not of God gathering us out of this world, but coming to visit us in our distress and to fix everything that is so wrong about our present existence, resolving the problems of evil, removing the ills of sickness and suffering and anguish, and vindicating the blood of his saints who would die carrying their cross, following in the footsteps of our Savior Jesus. That is the message. Faithfully witness to the truth of the gospel, even unto death. Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, and for the privilege of looking in to this powerful book tonight. God, thank you that you have spoken to your people through your word. God, I, I pray that you would give us a, a sense of access to the book of Revelation, that we could see and relish the message of the gospel from this unique perspective. Remind us, Lord, that you alone are worthy, that this world and our lives are under your authority. Help us to rest in that. Help us to run the race that's set before us to finish the course in a, in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Help us in good times and in bad, when we're well, when we're sick, when things are good or we're even under duress to remember your goodness over our life, that all things indeed are being worked together for our good and your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.